So what I want to do today, I want to begin with a question, okay? I want to begin with a question. How do you know when God is at work in an event or situation? You know, muddling away all the Christianese, you know, God is always at work, you know, and walking through the tulips barefoot. How would you say God is always discerned that, right? And, and this question, the way you answer it will most likely depend on how you were discipled or raised as a Christian and whatever Christian tradition you happen to have been raised in. Um, I myself, I grew up Church of God in Christ. That's a Pentecostal branch of uh, Christian uh, faith. And my roots run deep through this tradition. You know, I was uh, 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 mentored and discipled by godly men and women in this tradition. But when I ask this question to my Pentecostal brothers and sisters, how do you know God is at work in a situation or an event? When pressed after muddling all the Christianese away, right, they, they tend to say, well, you know God is at work if something supernatural has occurred, right? Uh, prophecy or tongues or healings or uh, works of miracles. Then you know for sure, Quincy, God is at work. And I always thought, really, only in those circumstances and instances is the Lord at work? Um, and, of course, there, there's variability. They all want to answer this way. There's some variability. Well, as I matured as a, as a Christian and I developed, and as my theology developed, I became more reformed in my, in my outlook. Now, I just want to be clear, that's not to say that all maturing Christians become reformed, okay? Uh, there are good, mature brothers and sisters who are still in different traditions who are doing good work for the Lord. That was just my path that I was convinced of the biblical evidence on that score. Um, <laughs> but I discovered that many of my Christian brothers and sisters kind of outside of the more charismatic expression, the way they would answer the question, how do you know God is at work, when you kind of uh, melt away all the Christianese, they, it kind of sounds like this. Uh, you know God is at work when an event is highly unlikely otherwise. It's like, really? In, uh, in other words, you know God is intervening if something happened that would be highly unlikely had God, had God not intervened. And when you consider this, it's kind of like the Pentecostal answer, just a little more, if you will, sophisticated, right? The Pentecostals say it must be supernatural, and the uh, ones with the less charismatic expression kind of put it in a probability calculus. Mm, would this have happened otherwise, given the background information and all that jazz? But what I, but what I wonder is this. Could it be that God works through normal rhythms of nature and human forces equally? Equally. Isn't that something? Let's see what our narrative has to say about this this morning. Okay? Thank you so much for your grace and mercy and for your son, Jesus Christ, Lord. And I pray that you would continue to sanctify us and work in us as we work in our culture to be light and salt, Lord, I pray that the sermon would convict us to become more like you and would grow us and develop us, Lord. And I pray that you would increase so that I might decrease and we give you all the glory and the honor that you so wonderfully deserve. In the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, we pray. Amen. Amen. There are three sections that Luke narrates regarding Paul's imprisonment, you will recall as we're working through the book of Acts. The first, starting in chapter 21, Luke accounts Paul's arrest and imprisonment in Jerusalem. And then we mosey on to chapter 24, the second section. We're told of Paul's imprisonment and trials in Caesarea. 
And then now we're in the last section. This is traversing chapter 27 to 28, though we'll focus on 27 this morning. Narrates Paul's transfer to and imprisonment in Rome. Now, after the back and forth drama of the judicial scenes of Acts 21 to 26, Luke's narrative now becomes immersed in the slow details of cargoes and harbors, of wind directions and sails, dinghies and anchors, and finally drawn into the nightmare of storm and shipwreck. Content that slows the narrative down and builds the tension. Did you notice that as our sister was reading this morning? I take as my subject or theme this morning, God is always at work in natural and human forces. God is always at work in natural and human forces to fulfill his promises. Starting in chapters 27, chapter 27, we find ourselves placed in the ship with Paul. His destination, Rome. A journey to the fulfillment of the geological movement and call back to Acts 1.8, which tells us, you will be my witnesses from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And this episode in 27 consists of at least three incidents. The first is, Paul warns the voyage, warns that the voyage is headed toward damage and heavy loss, but he is ignored. He is ignored. But then, as Paul predicted, either from his own experience, wisdom, the storm strikes. The storm strikes. Now, according to Dr. Craig Keener, he's a New Testament scholar and uh, one of the authorities on the book of Acts, and I quote, danger was so common at sea that some estimate that a fifth of voyagers face danger on significant voyages. Perhaps half of all voyages face delays. Shipwrecks were so common that archaeologists have identified more than a thousand ancient shipwreck remains. Wow. Wow. So a common, common uh, idea of destruction and, 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 and ruin. Then, in the last act of our chapter, the ship is destroyed. We've run into a shipwreck. What is amazing is that God preserves not only Paul, but his fellow prisoners. In antiquity, some attributed the survival of even one swimming fugitive to divine favor. But by God's amazing grace, 276 of the passengers, all of them, all of them were saved. And this could only be attributed to God's protection. As I was reading this passage and, and meditating over this passage, I uh, was trying to figure out why I felt so uneasy about this passage. And it boiled down to this. I found compelling Paul's behavior and demeanor through this whole thing. That's what was making me uneasy. I, I couldn't believe how he was able to keep things together in the middle of a storm. Let me tell you about later in demeanor. He warns the crew of impending disaster. Paul is a truth teller no matter what circumstances he is in. Wow. Paul encourages the passengers to eat and not despair. He cares for his fellow man. He cares for them, encouraging them. He gives advice that saves the lives of the crew and passengers, including 
the prisoners, including those who have been found guilty. As a result, Paul becomes influential with various people groups. He receives the respect and recognition of the people with whom he has contact and has words of advice and a message from the Lord. He does all this while possibly facing death. All of this while possibly facing death. How was Paul able to keep this demeanor? How, Paul? How could you do that? Well, let's, he answers this question. Let's turn to uh, Acts 27, verse 20. Days, neither sun nor stars appeared, and the severe storm kept raging. Finally, hope that we would be saved was disappearing. Since many were going without food, Paul stood up among them and said, You men should have followed my advice not to sail from Crete and sustain this damage and loss. I should note, now I'm not one who's uh, been on many boats. I'm a city boy. But what I do know for sure is that the stars help you to navigate, right? When you're on the boat, you use the stars for navigation. And so when you add the fact that you cannot see where you're headed or how to navigate, and then you add on top of that the way the pagans understood life and death at sea, it causes a very bleak picture for their future. Recall that the pagans thought that if you were to die at sea, this is the worst kind of fate. Because your soul would wander. It would never find its resting place at the other side of life. And so that was the worst kind of thing to do is to die at sea. So you don't know where you're headed. If you die, you have no resting place. This is not a terrified. Verse 22. Now I urge you to take courage, Paul says, because we will, uh, there will be no loss of any of your lives, but only of the ship. For this night, an angel of, of the God I belong to and serve stood by me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And look, God has graciously given you all those who are selling with you. Therefore, take courage, men, because I believe God. Powerful three words. I believe God that it will be just the way it was told to me. That's, that's, that's huge. Again, I just try to paint the picture for us in the, in the city. You're on this ship. There's 276 passengers on it. The waves are beating you. You don't know if you're going to live. You can't see where you're headed. And Paul says, I believe God. But Paul, the nautical experts on the ship are straight up telling us that we're heading toward destruction. And Paul says, I believe God. We're hungry. We're tired. There's no hope for rescue. There's no land in sight, Paul. You're crazy. You're out of your mind. All the evidence is going contrary to the promise that God has given you. And Paul stands firm and he says, I believe God. Is there anyone in here who believes God this morning? I believe God. Through the storm, Paul remains steadfast in holding to the promise of God that he will make it to Rome. My Lord, have mercy. Everything around him is crumbling, literally. But he stands firm on God's promise. But what is Luke trying to tell us about God from this literal shipwreck. Why does Luke put this long narrative here? 
There are different answers to this question if you thumb the commentaries, and I believe some are more plausible than others, but what is clear is what, readers, uh, is what Luke's readers already know, right? Luke's readers already know that Paul is innocent of the charges brought against him in Jerusalem and Caesarea. We, we know this. We've been reading the text. We've been following along. So a detailed story of Paul surviving a shipwreck does not add substantially to what we already know about Paul and his status. So why is this narrative here? The report of the shipwreck and the storm remind us that Paul's life is indeed in danger. I mean, obviously, right? That is an understatement. But what is beautiful? This is, this is beautiful. This is, this is the masterful artwork of Luke. What, what is amazing is that from Paul's recent vindication before Agrippa, Luke now adds divine vindication through storm and shipwreck. Isn't that something? From Paul's recent vindication from Agrippa, Luke now adds divine vindication through storm and shipwreck. And it reminds the reader, and us included, that God's control over history includes the survival of Paul, who has been given the assurance that he will reach Rome to be a witness there. The primary theological message of this voyage narrative fits the rest of Acts. It fits the rest, rest of Acts perfectly. Nothing, nothing at all, whether persecution or divisions or natural obstacles can stop the gospel in God's plan. Have you noticed that when you're taking yourself from Acts 1 to now? Have you noticed that being a constant theme? God's message cannot be hindered. God's truth cannot be snuffed out. Even if you attempt to kill them, God's message will still reign. And in general, God is at work in all natural and all human forces to fulfill his promises. Now, what does this mean for us today, right? What does this mean for me right now in 2023? Without resorting to a full-blown symbolic interpretation of the shipwreck narrative, which is tempting for a preacher, you know. <laughs> the ship represents this and the storm represents that. Uh, the detailed description of the dangers of the sea should, though, remind us that our own existence as Christians may suddenly be threatened by forces we cannot control. We can rest assured that God's control over all history includes us. He has our lives in his hand. Did you know that? He has our lives. Everything is in his hand. He is not a weak God. He's a powerful God. He's a God who was supremely sovereign. He doesn't make mistakes. Nothing slips past his gaze, you see. God fulfills his promises and purposes through every natural mean, whether through rescue from life or threatening situations or through the ability to preserve in suffering or through the provision of courage to face obstacles. Now, at, at this point, I want to be clear. God does not and has not promised us a life of health, wealth, and prosperity. We reject, and I, and I, and I know for sure that Pastor Brian and the elders and leaders here reject, and I think it would be too harsh to say, the demonic teachings of the prosperity gospel. Is that all right? It is not of God. It is a dangerous doctrine that has ruined lives. It is doctrine from the enemy. And may God have mercy 
on the souls of those who continue to teach such sick things. God does not promise you that because when you come to Christ, you'll be perfectly healthy or perfectly wealthy or everything you do will prosper. That is a lie. But while God does not always promise rescue and survival, he always fulfills his promises. Always. That is a guarantee. That is truth. So what are we called to do? What are we called to do? We are called, my brothers and sisters, to hold firm to the promises of God. To hold as Paul held firm. Recall what he said. He said, I believe God. No matter what's going on around me, I believe God. We hear this often, but what has God promised us? What has he promised us? You know, it's kind of vague. I believe the promises of God, but which ones in particular? How do I sort them out? In the book, All the Promises of the Bible, the author, Dr. Herbert Lockery, found 7,147 promises from God to man in the Bible. That's a lot of promises. Uh, uh, And I highlight this morning a few that I think resonate most with our text. And quite frankly, a few that I have to go back to myself in my life, that I have to go back to myself. The first is God designed us for for a purpose. You were not an accident. You weren't born on accident. No matter what anyone has told you or your life circumstance, God has a purpose for you that's tailor-made. If Think about it this way. Just as your DNA is unique, isn't that beautiful? You are needed in the body of Christ. You are needed as a light on your job. You are needed. You, everything. Remember Acts 17 said, God has predetermined and destined the very time you were born, who you are, how you will be, so that you might be a light into the world. Every place you step, you are needed there as a light, as a witness of Jesus Christ. Second, God promised us to give us power to live life. Life is hard. You know this. Those of you who have been living for a while, you know life is difficult. And here's here's how we're different from the world. We have Holy Spirit power to live life well. How to be good spouses. How to be good parents. How to be good friends, good neighbors. How to be good people. As Aristotle tells us, the udamonia, the the, the good life. The good life is not found in physical riches. In fact, the, the, the best life is found in the inanimate, the immaterial things of love and joy and kindness and patience and long-suffering. And, 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 and the Holy Spirit gives us power to live life well. The world will always suck at living life because they're not empowered by God to do it well. So why do we model ourselves after the world? That's another time, another topic. But, you know, we have to be mindful of this. The third promise is that God promises us an abundant life. Wow. Again, this doesn't mean a life of riches, but a life of those who've been walking with the Lord for a while know what I mean here is that it's not that all of the things in life have gone perfectly, but there's this sometimes unexplainable fullness, richness of life that, that you carry no matter what you're going through. And lastly, what is closest to my heart is that God promises that he'll never leave you nor forsake you. I know for me personally, in the phase of life that I'm in, uh, uh, things are difficult. You know, I'm in school full time. I have three boys under six years old. 
and uh, it's kind of like, you know, my wife fully can't grasp what I'm doing in school because uh, it's just very rules. And, uh, and, and, the, and the pressures are put on me to stay longer hours at school, right, to neglect my family. All my colleagues are doing it. They're either single or they're completely neglecting their families. And so I have that pressure on me on that side. But then on the other side, I want to be honorable and I want to lift my family up. And so I feel oftentimes alone. Like, God, can you help me? Where I, I feel like I'm in the middle of the ocean, right, and the storm is brewing, but I'm all by myself. But God promises that he'll never leave me nor have the same confidence as I wish I did like Paul does. But I kind of on my knees say, Lord, please, you promised that you'll be there for me. Could you show up? Could you show me? And so we hold fast to these promises. Hold fast to these promises, my brothers and sisters, when your marriage is rocky or when it gets rocky. Hold fast to these promises when your business is struggling to make it to the next quarter. Hold fast to these promises when your children might be going awry or, or when you're not sure what to do with your life or you're struggling with loneliness. You need to hold fast to these promises when, when, when you're struggling with sin that, that your closest friends don't even know of, right? And the sanctification process isn't is happening as fast as you'd like it to. Hold on to these promises because God will never fail to achieve what he has promised. Now, you know to hold firm to these promises of God is at root to hold firm to Jesus. Is at root to hold firm to Jesus. These promises have no power without Jesus, right? They're not charms. They're not uh, uh, something you find on Pinterest or, or, or some Twitter feed of, let me pluck out this promise for today and put it on my wall or mirror. They're not, they're not charms or seances. These promises are connected to a real person, and they have no power when disconnected from Jesus Christ. To hold firm to God's promises, we must first hold firm to the ultimate promise, who is Jesus Christ. What I mean is that we must deepen our trust in Jesus. This is the key to our success as promise believers. Did you know that? We're promise believers. Now, we must hold firm to Jesus because it is only through Jesus, you know, that all of the promises in Scripture are yes. And God fulfills his promises because Jesus has fulfilled his Father's requirements with perfect obedience. Through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, we have access to all that the Father has promised to provide. There is no good in holding on to a promise of someone you barely know or trust. That's the key, you see. That's, that's the dilemma. There is, it's no good in holding on to a promise of someone you do not believe or someone you do not trust. Because as soon as the storm comes in life, and they will come, I can guarantee you, I can guarantee you, whether you're a believer or not, storms will come in life, right? It'll be, it'll be sometimes catastrophic and unexpected. But when they come, if your trust in Jesus is not abandoned, the promise and the person. We can only grow in our trust and confidence in Jesus through getting to know what he is like. Our trust in Jesus must be stronger than life's storms. Our trust in Jesus must be stronger than life's storms. And so how do you prepare for that? Well, as Pastor Brian showed us today and our brother, they have discipleship programs. You got to get to know Jesus. 
get to know Jesus, not in that corny little way where you come on Sunday, you have a good time moment, and then you know, the rest of the week you're filling your mind and heart with all kinds of other things. You must live a life of getting to know Jesus to develop that kind of trust. And so here at Oaks Parish, there are a host of ways you can get plugged in to grow deeper with Jesus. So trust and confidence can only be attained by growing, attained by growing in your relationship with the promise giver. So we do not need to worry about how exactly God will care for us. We just need to focus on caring for our relationship with Jesus. Protect your relationship. Nurture your relationship and hold firm to it. So in conclusion, in conclusion, allow me to summarize what I think Luke has for us in this chapter. Okay? Luke relates the perils of Paul's situation and emphasizes God's power at work in the world of dangerous and natural human forces and the faithfulness of God who fulfills his promises. As a result, we are called to hold fast to the promises of God, which has its full expression in Jesus Christ. And we are told to hold fast in every situation, but especially when going through our own personal storms of life. And we are empowered to hold on to these promises by deepening our relationship with Jesus, the key that unlocks the door to all promises. Amen. Let us pray. Dad, we thank you that you are a promise keeper. My Lord, we thank you. We thank you so much. That even when I fail at my end of the bargain, you say, oh, but I'm still going to hold my end up because of Jesus Christ, Lord. I'm so grateful that when you see us, you see your son. That we've been justified, thank you, Lord, justified by the work of Jesus and so, Dad, I pray right now that by your spirit, you would warm our hearts to remind us that you will keep all the promises. And no matter what storms we're going through in life, you are there with us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, we pray. Amen. Amen.